You're listening to the Red Blue Capital Podcast. I'm your co-host, Prescott Watson, and along with my partner, Olaf Sackers, we discuss the issues facing the automotive and transportation sectors today. For highlights, show notes, and to find more episodes of this podcast, visit us online at news.red.blue. It is late October 2023, and today's conversation is focused entirely on the ongoing strike and labor negotiations between the UAW Labor Union and the big three Detroit automakers. Our guest is Nora Eckert, a journalist with the Wall Street Journal covering the major American automakers. Nora has been with the journal for two years, before which she had covered business issues for a variety of regional papers. Much of the last month, she spent embedded in this contentious negotiation, so we're glad to have her as a resource as we discuss union politics and the unexpected rise of its much more aggressive leadership, the backdrop of labor's accumulated losses and concessions over the last decades, the context of labor's particularly, I would say, extraordinary demands in this round of negotiations. We dive into the economics of car making. How reasonable are some of these eye-popping numbers like a 40% wage increase in a 32-hour work week? And perhaps I editorialize a bit here, but I believe that we end up seeing that much of the automakers' profitability issues may start with labor, but they certainly don't end there. They're much more part of a systemic issue around the move to electric. Thank you for joining the podcast, Nora. Thank you for having me on, Prescott. So for those of us not in the automotive industry, um, it's useful to know that every four years, these contract negotiations take place between the big three Detroit automakers and the auto union, the UAW. Um, And you joined the Wall Street Journal two years ago covering Ford, but you know, heading up to September 15th, the, the last day of the contract for the last four years, I'm sure everyone in the newsroom was starting to place bets, uh, try to figure out what they expected to happen. What was that experience like leading up to this, ultimately this really big strike? Um, how did you see what was going to happen? And how did that compare to how things have played out so far? Yeah, yeah. So so when I joined, gosh, it was uh, January of 2022, um, I knew that this was in the in the future. I didn't really know how how big of a part of my beat it would become, and obviously now it's consumed a lot of the beat. But we we all know in Detroit that these contract negotiations are contentious. They can be long, or they can be very short. You know, there's been several several recent talks that have resolved without a strike. So there was a big question mark around what would happen in this round of talks, and. The biggest, you know, factor in that was who was going to be our UAW president. So we had the incumbent, Ray Curry, who was sort of the person from the administration caucus. He had previously been the VP of the union, or excuse me, he had previously been the, the secretary treasurer of the union and had risen to the president's role. And you had this slate of contenders from across, you know, different camps throughout the union. And... We, we knew around spring of this year that there was a very, or excuse me, even earlier than that, we knew around the winter that there was this very fierce fight between Sean Fain and Ray Curry. And I was following that quite closely. And a lot of folks in Detroit were saying, oh, you know, Ray Curry's got the name recognition. He's definitely going to, to clinch the win. Well, Sean Fain came from behind and unseated the incumbent, which is... Uh, as an outside contender, he wasn't a part of the administrative caucus. It's the first time that's happened in over 70 years for this union. 
So, so the minute that Sean Fain won, we realized this was going to be a much different contract campaign than, than anyone in the Bureau had covered before because there was a ruling caucus that was different from what we've, what we've seen in the past. And, and what has unfolded, Prescott, in the last few months has been a, a contract campaign, a strike that the executives at, at the D3 and the press corps haven't ever experienced. So it's been really interesting to have a front seat in covering it. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things looking at this from an outsider is that personalities here matter. It seems like um, this strike is an economic issue, right? It's a macro issue. It's about the economics of automaking. But ultimately, it's a salary negotiation, and it's led by people that are elected in a political process within the union. So, you know, as you pointed out, Sean Fain differs radically from his predecessors. The auto unions have such an interesting history. I mean, a lot of the recent leadership has come under immense pressure and criticism for not necessarily representing the interests of the union. I mean, there there are multiple union presidents, I think, in prison now for essentially corruption and kind of, you know, enriching themselves. Um, and Sean kind of had really flipped the tables. Would you call him sort of like a, a populist of sorts within the political system of the union? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. So I'll say that that is that is the messaging from his camp. And it depends on, you know, who you talk to um, of what what the what the truth is there. I think his message is really resonating with members and a lot of longtime members of the union have said to me, we've never seen a president this accessible. You know, he's on these weekly live streams. He's out at plants shaking members' hands. Like, he's much more visible than we've seen in the past. Also, he's he's just much more present in, in broadcast media as well. He's on TV a lot more than past presidents, and that's all a part of this very strategic campaign to sort of drive the agenda in these talks and be as transparent as possible with members. Yeah, but Sean is interesting because, you know, and I think I even just said this, he's a bit of an outsider, but he's been in the union for several decades, and he rose through the ranks at Chrysler, um, now Stellantis. He was an electrician. He's had roles at the um, at the union's executive board. I mean, he's he served on national contract campaign talks before, um, but he hasn't taken the traditional path of rising through. Okay, I'm I'm leading a contract campaign. I'm the secretary treasurer, and then I'm president, which is more typical. So he jumped a few rungs in the union, and I think that's what's been so surprising to the folks who have been observing this industry or working in it for so long. Okay, so the politics have changed, the tone has changed within the the union, and that's the backdrop for the nuts and bolts of the of the negotiation, which is that the demands have also changed quite a bit. Can you just give us a, a rundown of of what the union opened up with, where the negotiations stand, and you know, can you put that in context of like what people were expecting during this entering this round of negotiations? Yeah, so as a start, I think we can definitely say that the automakers have stretched themselves farther than they expected to. And they've they've been pretty open about that. Some of the executives have, even in, in public. So the union came out initially with demands for a 40% general wage increase, the return of cost of living adjustments. They wanted a much faster um, transition from temporary workers to full-time workers. That had been a big sticking point in the past where workers would log years as a temp and not get full-time status until, you know, much later. 
Um, they also had some some flashier asks that I knew drew a lot of attention in the last few months. One was uh, demand for a 32-hour work week at 40-hour pay, which was a reversal or sort of a um, here, I'll just backtrack a bit on that, Prescott. Okay, yeah, no worries. They also had some of some of these more flashy demands that I think got a lot of attention from the broader public, and one of them was a 32-hour work week for 40-hour pay. And Sean Fain characterized that as sort of this necessary correction from the pandemic, where workers had logged really long hours on the factory floor while some of their folks who were working in corporate were able to, you know, work from their home offices. And there had been a little bit of, or maybe a lot of bit of resentment from the workforce over that sort of, um, you know, inequity over the last few years. And even executives acknowledged, you know, you've supported us so much through the pandemic, you deserve a raise. I mean, that was never a question. But also, like, all of these demands, the 40% wage increase, COLA, um, you know, increased benefits for retirees, all this was seen as a correction from the concessions that automakers have made in past rounds of talks, and particularly around the 2007-2009 financial crisis. Yeah, a big part of the discussion is the recouping of you know these accumulated concessions that the unions have made. In the last 30 or 40 years, I think we all kind of generally have the sense that manufacturing has been a worse place to work in than you know 40 years ago. But could you kind of build that out for us. What What's really happened? Like the two-tier wage system that was introduced and the, um, you know, dropping cost of living adjustments. Can, can you just give us some color behind what is it really that the unions have lost over that 40-year period? Yeah, I think, and, and you know, I don't want to paint the workers as a monolith because there's certainly a variety of opinions, you know, and there's a variety of opinions even on how these talks and this strike are, are playing out. But broadly, I've heard from a lot of workers that They've made concessions to support the companies. I mean, just take COLA, for example. When COLA was suspended, workers were were completely expecting to get that back, and that hasn't happened. Right now, that is a benefit that's on the table for most of the automakers, so it's looking like we might be getting that back. But there's this sense almost of, of betrayal of, you know, we've done all this to keep the automakers afloat and, you know, in some cases to help um, avoid bankruptcy if you're Ford. And where's our repayment? So that's that's like the overwhelming correction here. And also, I mean, in the background, and this is like the big elephant in the room, is the UAW is emerging from this corruption scandal that has sent a couple of former presidents, UAW presidents, to, to prison. And this leadership is, you know, really making a stand of those days are in the past. Right now, we are fighting for workers. We're not going to be cozy with the companies. And in fact, Sean Fain said that recently in response to a speech Bill Ford made. He said, you know, the days of us working as a team against our our rivals, our foreign automakers and Tesla, that's over. Like, I am really fighting for the workers now. I'm not fighting to save Ford. And fighting to save Ford or fighting to save companies has become much less of a reasonable thing to say. Now, I I actually, well, funny, I do think that the automakers have long-term challenges but the pandemic was, in some weird way, it was actually not bad at all for automakers. The, the supply side shocks actually you know, cut inventories, prices went way up, you know, cars cost way more today than they did even three years ago, and that made these companies very profitable. And so the short-term profits, which I don't think represent any kind of long-term strength that these companies have, but the short-term profits are now a huge part 
of, you know, the the optics and the and the negotiation tactics in this this round of negotiations, right? Yeah, I, I do think so. And of course, you can't ignore just the broader cultural shift we have around the labor movement. I mean, the worker is in much more position of power than they have been in in recent memory. So I think there's a sense from from Fain and his team that they need to seize this moment while they can, and you know, while the public support is at their back. Um, but also, of course, these these pretty sizable profits that the D3 have banked in the last few years um, put them in a little bit of an uncomfortable situation, right? Because they want to be bragging to Wall Street of, hey, we've got X, X prepared, we've got X in the bank. But that doesn't look great for for the UAW. I mean, they're pointing to those those profits and saying, well, you know, you should be easily able to support our demands. Um, in fact, after GM reported earnings earlier this this week that we're talking, um, immediately after the UAW struck Arlington, one of their biggest, most profitable plants in the U.S. So there's a direct correlation between these record earnings, uh, you know, releases and the UAW's response. Um, yeah, but I would say that, you know, of course, the automakers are, are saying these record profits aren't just going nowhere. I mean, we, we need these to fund the EV transition, as as you and probably all of your listeners understand. But it, it, it's a difficult tension there, right? Because it, there's a sense from the automakers of, you know, a lot of this money has been allotted. We don't just have all this to throw at the union. And the union is saying, okay, reorganize your priorities then. Nora, you've interviewed, I mean, you've spent time with a lot of the leadership in these unions. What do they think about the long-term prospects for the companies that they're negotiating against right now? It totally makes sense that they're looking at this pot of profits that have been accumulated and they're saying, hey, this, some of this needs to go to the workers. It can't just be you know, spent out as dividends, right? Um, certainly not if your excuse for not giving it to workers is that you have to make investments. Well, then make investments. Don't don't give it out to investors, right? But how sustainable these profits are, in my view, they're they're much more fickle than than it would seem, right? The price of the average car shot up like twenty or sometimes thirty five percent in three or four years. I mean, I think Stellantis is selling cars almost forty percent more today than they were in twenty nineteen, right? So like. That's not sustainable. Uh, you know, people are deferring new car purchases because they don't want to spend that much money. Tesla is starting to lower prices. And more important than all of these things, the cars of the future, the electric vehicles, those are not profitable. Those are, those are losing quite a bit of money for these car companies. So again, I understand from the union's perspective that if they're looking at the last few years, they're saying, hey, this money needs to go to us too, right? That makes sense. But as you've gotten to know how these folks are thinking what do you think they see as the long-term prospects for the companies that their, you know, their fate is ultimately tied to? Yeah, the, you're you're getting at really what is the core tension between the companies and the union that the folks on the company side are are saying are you know being critical of the union's approach and saying these are demands that sure they'll support you for the next few years, but the long-term health of our companies are in jeopardy and our overall competitiveness could be in jeopardy if we accept these. So ultimately, this is going to not just hurt us, it's hurting our workers, you know, so this is detrimental to the union. Um, the union has not bought that argument, just say that that's to put it lightly. And I think there, there's a few reasons. One of them is they're used to hearing this argument in good and bad times, if that makes sense. I mean, I've talked to workers yes. about this this argument. And they say, okay, well, 
That's their argument when they're, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy. That's their argument when they're wildly profitable. That's always the argument, you know, like this sense that we need to defend our competitiveness as a company has been repeated to them, you know, ad nauseum over the years. And I think some of them are just sick of it. That's not to say that it's not true. I mean, it could totally be true that these demands would put the D3 in, in a tricky spot financially. But yeah, but also I, I think the union is calling for, like I was saying before, a, a reorganization of priorities. And, you know, when Ford announced their their dividend last week, the union immediately was on that. And there's just this sense that, okay, you've got this pot of money right now, use less of it to reward Wall Street and more of it to reward the workers who build your vehicles. So they're, they're not... They, they, in their perspective, all the money is there. It just needs to be shifted around. And honestly, the most compelling thing, you know, I hear from labor is, well, if you're going to shift this money around, like shifting, shifting some of it to support our demands is not actually going to be nearly as bad for the company as as you're making it out to be, right? Um, and it gets into this interesting question that I think gets overlooked a lot, which is, how important is labor for the overall cost structure of these companies? Yeah, I think that's such a good point because the the union has repeated that of, you know, okay, you say this is going to drive your hourly labor costs up X percent, but that's just like, you know, X percent of the overall picture. I'll leave it to your super smart analyst to fill in those X's for me. I've heard different numbers on that. But yeah, I, I think it's very, yeah, there, there's there's a tension there around, how big labor costs should be in relation to to other costs at the companies. Um, so I, as far as I've heard from the companies, they haven't really gone into the weeds on, on that argument. Um, their main focus is, okay, so our hourly labor costs are around 65, 66. Um, Tesla's is 45, and the foreign automakers around 55. So if our goal is to be as competitive as we can with those folks, how are we going to do that if our hourly labor costs are driven up to, you know, X, uh, when they're already $20 more than Tesla? So that's been the main argument from, from the companies. And when we look at like the actual uh, cost structures, considering things outside of labor, um, and we'll, you know, in the series, we'll get in, into to more of what goes into that cost structure, but... I don't think that labor is such an, a massive uh, impact. I mean, even it, when people were trying to run scenarios of imagine there was a 12% uh, effective pay increase, right? Not yeah. looking at the, because I think some of these analyst notes predated the introduction of the 32 hours and yes, the, uh, yeah. the defined benefits pensions and stuff. But if you just looked at the wage increase, the net operating margins, the impact is much less than you might think it is. Um, so, so, you know, I guess let me voice what I think the other big cost issues are. One is just when you shift to electric, your extremely profitable, you know, truck sales have to subsidize your kind of lossy electric sales. Hmm. Um, but the reason the EVs are not very profitable now is one, there's a question around demand. And I know yeah. you've written about this quite a bit, but like, are we making a bunch of expensive, unprofitable cars that nobody even wants to buy? And then the second thing is... The cost structure they have behind everything from batteries to a lot of these new vehicles, it's going to take several years before they can actually get these costs kind of in line with what you would expect for an at-scale type of product. So I remember Ford reported like for every dollar that it sold, um, 
of its new F-150 Lightning and, and Mach-E, it's like losing 50 or 60 cents, right? And, mm-hmm. and contrast, Tesla's making 12 cents for every dollar it sells, right? So that's a massive gap. Where, where do you think, um, where have you heard the arguments back and forth around labor's um, function within the broader you know, strategy of getting these electric vehicles, uh, these new electric vehicle lines profitable. I mean, because labor is going after the battery plants, for example, which yeah. are probably ground zero for like what is going to make these new product lines successful or not. Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, so just like as an entry point here, I was looking through some analyst notes that I had flagged too, and I'm sure you're seeing the same ones. And an updated one now that we're looking at uh, around 23% wage increases are the offers on the table as of as of last week um, for most of the companies. That, for Ford, would negatively impact their margins by like 90 BPS or so. Um, so, you know, it's not crazy, just that 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 fraction of it. But I think that, um, or I don't know, would you agree? I mean, that's that's not super significant. Yeah, and this is what I've always found confusing about management a management's position. Like, I don't think that labor is your biggest problem. I think, um, I think that your biggest problem is you're being forced to go electric and you haven't built profitable electric vehicle lines before. And you know, the funny thing is I'm not hearing that from, from the unions. I feel like the, you know, maybe there's just an aspect of what can be said versus what, and what can't be said. But if I were the union leadership, I'd be like, you guys have your own problem here, which is you haven't built a path to profitability on on important product lines. Labor is a very small portion of what makes that screwed up, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- and I think that that the essence of that message is there, but like the way you said it, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, yeah, I think you know, in the last month, we've seen demand or announcements rather from several automakers about either you know, putting battery plants on ice or reducing um, production of certain EVs or even walking back production targets. I mean, we saw that this week with GM. And there's a little bit of, you know, we need to evaluate where our labor costs land after these negotiations. But a lot of that has been publicly attributed to demand. So I think even from the companies, we're seeing that this isn't like a, a shift totally based on the UAW talks or anything like that. But that is one variable they're trying to control because, you know, they need to keep wages at these battery plants or are trying to keep wages um, in line with, uh, they're working with JV partners, right? So this is a complicated situation of how they're and going the to affect these are, wages. JV are Asian companies that are largely unionized, exactly. which probably adds another awkward dimension where LG doesn't have nearly as many, you know, rounds of experience of working with like a labor contract negotiation. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. So, you know, if they're expecting to pay their workers a certain amount, they're not going to, you know, take kindly to, okay, well, actually, we need to raise that by 25%. And the top pay is going to be x. And so, yeah, I think that's the that's the greater concern is there's just so much variability in how if these jobs were were union or under the master agreement, and there's there's so much nuance in that, that I won't even try to get into it. But, um, you know, it could just drastically change plans for these automakers and their JV partners. So I think there's a sense of we don't want that uncertainty adding on top of the existing uncertainty around demand. I want to talk about what role the government plays here. I mean, you're seeing Joe Biden walk up to the picket lines at these strikes. I think people in the tech world until very recently, I mean, politics has taken a distinct interest in tech in the last few years. But 
until recently, there was a sense of like, why is a job lost in Kokomo, Indiana, you know, a political issue, whereas when Oracle lays off 10,000 people, like no one bats an eye, right? Um, I want to talk about the government involvement here because obviously it's it's more than just the story about hourly workers losing their jobs. It's also a story of how the government is balancing competing interests, right? It, it wants to help automakers go electric, but it also wants to help workers make more money. And it's it's paying the car companies to do this, right? You know, if you're building a cell in the in the states, a battery cell, you, you're going to get thirty five cents a kilowatt hour. Sorry, thirty five dollars a kilowatt hour. You're going to get ten dollars a kilowatt hour if you're doing the the module in the U.S. And so altogether, if if you're looking at you know a normal long range electric car, that's thousands of dollars. And even if you take out the cost of building the factory and whatnot, and you split that money between you and your your JV partner, which is typically a Korean company, um, that's still you know a thousand or two thousand dollars in the pockets of GM that the government's just handing them to help them make this transition. So clearly, the government has a big role to play here, and um, yeah, I mean that that's made this a very political thing. Can you speak to how the union is is leveraging that in their own negotiations? Yeah, yeah, that that visit, uh, you know, President Biden's visit to the picket lines was so it was so interesting to observe how the union and the companies responded to that. It was obviously a historic moment that the union really seized upon and was highly publicized. And they tweeted out a, a bunch of videos of, you know, Sean Fain standing alongside Joe Biden. And um, so I think some workers and, and, you know, folks on the company side and and just generally, I heard this from a lot of readers, is aren't these things at odds, though? I mean, he's, he's showing up to the picket line for workers. He's saying, um, yeah, they should get the 40% wage increase. Yet he's pushing this transition to, to EVs that is making paying these costs less possible for the companies. So, you know, um, increasing the labor costs, like how, how, how are they going to do this while also transitioning to EVs as he's as he's intended? And um, yeah, that's just been a very interesting tension to watch to watch play out on on both sides. And there is a sense from even the automakers of since when did did our our products become so highly politicized? And um, Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford, and, and Bill Ford have spoken about this recently. If they would have never expected this to be such a such a political issue, and this this strike is not just about the EV transition. It's about Sean Sean Fain has said this is a fight for the for the working class. You know, this is a fight for workers everywhere who have lost their voices, even outside of autos. So I think President Biden's visit was seen bolstering that. You know, it wasn't just about this whole conversation around EVs or even this one negotiation. It was sort of symbolic of the of the broader labor movement. I think definitely to your point, like after Ford and its JV partner SK received a nearly $10 billion loan. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, $10 billion loan nearly earlier this year. Um, The union sent out a statement just reiterating um, quite strongly that, you know, if if they're accepting this government money, it needs to be supporting a just transition for UAW workers. And the mantra that Sean Fain repeats is this, this is a race to the bottom in the way that it currently stands. And our workers can't be lost in the shuffle here. So yeah, I think that the 
The government support of the EV transition is definitely complicating the whole UAW negotiations. And Sean Fain and his team have been very public about saying, all right, if you're getting billions of dollars, you know, you should have no problem paying our workers more. Well, speaking of American automotive companies that have received a lot of money from the government to push these electric programs, Tesla is is an obvious one. Uh, and, you know, they are the big American car company that's not unionized. The UAW in the past has been, you know, just lambasted Tesla for labor practices and pay and everything. Um, where does Tesla stand on this? Is it going to be unionized? What's the conversation within the UAW like? Um, not the public conversation, but like, how do people within the UAW see Tesla? You know, they're not even waiting until <laughs> these contract campaigns are at the D3 are over necessarily is the sense you, I get, even from looking at Sean Fain's public statements. You know, he said, in response to Bill Ford's speech, he said, these are not our enemies, talking about Tesla, the foreign automakers, these are the um, UAW members of the future. Now it's it's very clear, even from the union's public messaging, that Tesla and the foreign automakers, you know, operating in the U.S. are the next targets. A big part of that, other than growing the UAW's membership, which it's down, it, right now it's 400,000 members total. So it's 146,000 for the D3, but then there's, there's folks in other sectors who are UAW members, including higher education, casino workers. Um, and, and that's down from one and a half million in the, in the 70s around there. So, I mean, the membership has totally dwindled over the years in auto and outside of auto. So there's this push to grow the UAW, but also if the if the argument from the automaker side is, look at our competitors, we can't absorb these costs, that has a lot less teeth if those competitors are unionized, you know? So that's that's one big reason that the union is thinking about its next push at, you know, at the foreign automakers here and, and Tesla is that if everybody's a UAW member, much less of an argument of, hey, I can't pay X because the other guy's paying Y because they'll all be paying the same. And of course, there's the irony of, how foreign automakers who don't face the same labor costs don't have or haven't made the same investments in going electric as the Americans have. I mean, Toyota, Honda are all relevant. There's always, you know, there are contrarian points of view. People think Toyota is coming out with some breakthrough solid state battery technologies and whatnot. But for the most part, they're considerably behind their American counterparts, Tesla and the big three in going electric, despite their different cost structures and the fact that they had more free cash uh, from the profits their vehicles generate. As, as you know, too, a big part of that, I think, is um, differences on how they view EV demand. And I think some some uh, executives at those companies are sort of running victory laps this week after the announcements from, from GM and others and, you know, this overall worry about where EV demand is. But yeah, definitely much more focus on hybrid production there, which we're even seeing more of that from from Ford saying that they want to significantly increase their hybrid production. So, uh, yeah, I think it's super interesting. The UAW talks have really focused on this EV transition, but you're negotiating around an issue that is so fluid. We don't even know where it's going to be by the time the next contract is being negotiated. You know, so they're all trying to, you know, bargain around these uncertainties and get their workers in as good of a place as possible, knowing that a lot of this may change within a couple months. Yeah, the fluidity of the situation is just part of one of those big contradictions with this whole thing. 
we don't know where EV demand is going. We don't know the cost structure. We don't know what's happening with the battery mineral supply chain, but we want to negotiate a four or longer year uh, you know, labor contract. The government wants affordable EVs, but they also want good jobs. It just feels like so much in this industry is changing at the same time, and everyone is trying to figure it out. Um, it seems like the only thing that will be constant here is the need for government support in the medium term. And given that the government is just doling out money to consumers to buy these things, to companies to make these things, you know, it really does feel that the Biden administration has a great point and the UAW is going to have a great point, which is that labor needs to have a bigger vote at the table if it is really the public that is paying for this transition to happen expressed through private industry. I think we in Detroit used to think of the UAW talks as, you know, every every four years you'd sit down and you'd have three months of intense, you know, coverage of these contract negotiations, some years more intense than others. But now I think there's a sense of, no, like this is going to be a beat that is important for for the next four years. It's not like, okay, we'll see you again in, in four. It's like, we're going to need to be covering these guys more consistently because it is such an important part of this transition, like the unionization efforts at other companies, for example, like these will be folks that you'll be hearing from a lot more, even outside of a D3 contract campaign. Yeah, I guess that means in four years we'll be uh, having this. Yeah, it um, means job <laughs> security for us, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> job security for the reporters and the analysts. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank yeah. you, Nora. I really appreciate your uh, your input on this. Yeah, thank you so much. Nice to talk with you about it.